Today I'm going to be talking about Acts chapter 18, um, and uh, the title of today's sermon is Co-Workers in Christ. One term that uh, the Apostle Paul often uses in his letters is this term, sunergos, and uh, the term has the prefix sun, which means with, and ergon, which means work, and depending on your translation, it's often translated fellow worker or co-worker. Uh, Paul uses this term uh, several places, and he calls a lot of people this term. Uh, For example, he uses this on Priscilla and Aquila. He uses this on Urbanus. He uses this on Timothy twice. He calls Titus this. He calls Epaphroditus this. He calls Clement this. He calls Aristarchus this twice. He calls this uh, of Mark twice. He calls this of Justin, Philemon, Demos, and Luke. He uses this term for a lot of different folks in his ministry. He calls these people co-workers. And we get our English word, synergy or synergism uh, from this Greek word as well. And this word uh, is used in a variety of contexts. Sometimes people use it in the medical sense. Uh, describes the interaction of two or more drugs working together in which their combined effect is greater than the sum um, when each drug is given alone. This word can also be used in a business sense in which individuals or companies they combine, they work together, or they merge. Sometimes they use it in merge, uh, merging and acquisition sort of language to achieve more productivity or efficiency. And I think the same principle applies to the church. In various places, Paul uh, talks about how we are one body and many members, and each member is, has different gifts to offer to the church. And each gift, though different, is vital to the survival of the whole body such that the whole body is greater than the sum of its parts. And so person A is like this, and person B is like this, and if they work independently, they have you know, this level of, of efficiency and fruit. But when they work together, when they come together as a church, and they complement one another, then you have synergy. And, and that effect, I think, is captured in this word, fellow worker. Paul, he views all these people in his ministry as they have different gifts and different talents and experiences, and they, they work together for this greater goal of building the church. Um, and so uh, I want to highlight two examples, Priscilla and Aquila, because that's in our passage today, Acts 18. These people Paul calls uh, fellow workers, and um, we're going to talk about these folks. Here's a picture of them. Um, I couldn't find a real one, so I just drew a picture. But uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they are a wife and husband duo. And it's interesting because uh, most people in the New Testament, we don't know the names of their spouses. We know Peter was married. We don't know her name. We know we, we can guess Philip was probably married because he had four daughters, but we don't know her name. And so most people in the New Testament are like, we just don't know the names of their spouses. But Priscilla and Aquila, every time they're introduced, they're introduced with one another. They're like this missionary couple. Um, they show up six times, three times in Acts, once in 1 Corinthians, once in Romans, and once in 2 Timothy. And every time they show up, their names are side by side. And it just shows that both of them, uh, it's like this fellow worker thing, both of them were playing vital roles in the carrying out of the gospel, in the mission of the church. And so today what I want to do is I want to explore just a few characteristics that we can gather from Priscilla and Aquila's ministry just to, so we can understand what does it mean to be a co-worker? What does it mean to be a fellow worker? 
in Christ. Okay, so I'm going to go through a few things. The first thing is this. Co-workers in Christ seek one another out. Co-workers in Christ seek one another out. Um, I'm going to read Acts 18, 1 to 3. This is the beginning of the chapter. After this, Paul left Athens. Uh, to recap, a few weeks ago we talked about Paul in Athens. That's where he gave the speech. We're talking about you know, the, the altar to an unknown God. So he left Athens, went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, which is a modern-day Turkey, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. <clears throat> so this is Paul's pattern in a lot of places. You know, he often, he arrives at a place, and the first thing he does is he seeks out people to partner with. He seeks out people who are like-minded, what, you know, Jesus in the Gospels calls people of peace, so that he can do ministry with them, not by himself. <clears throat> so think about this. So Paul is on this traveling missionary journey. You know, he's new. This is the first time he's arrived in Corinth, as far as we know. And meanwhile, he meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and we learn they are new arrivals as well. Uh, they had been serving, I mean, <clears throat> sorry, they had been living in Rome, and uh, Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, he expelled all the Jews. And we actually have, his, interestingly, historical records of this outside of the Bible. We, there are other people who are, not, who are not Christians. They talk about this incident where Claudius expels the Jews from Rome. And, and, and so these people are also new arrivals. And so these people, they're new arrivals together in the city of Corinth. And they decide to work together. They decide to be co-workers in two ways, we'll soon find out. One is that they're literal co-workers. They have the same job. They're tent makers. Okay, so uh, they have the same secular vocation. But secondly, as we'll find out later, they are spiritual co-workers. They also share the same mission of sharing the gospel and building the church. Um, and I love that they work together. I love that they are new arrivals. And even though they were new, even though both of them, we'll later find out, they don't intend to stay long-term in Corinth. Both of them, they believe that they need other people. They need co-workers. That they are stronger when they are in community with other people. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, I mean, one way to think about it, they're sort of like refugees. They were expelled from their previous homeland, so they're in a new place. They're, 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 they don't know too many people, probably. And, and, and they know, and eventually, after we find out, they will settle back in Rome. So they don't have it in their minds. They're going to stay here long term. And Paul, he's a traveling missionary. He's obviously not going to stay there long term. But they recognize for as long as God has them in the city of Corinth, they're going to need co-workers. They're going to need support. And so they seek out those co-workers. They work together. You know, over the past several decades, America, our country, you know, we've become more and more of a transient sort of society. It's becoming more common to, you know, live here for a little while, live there for a little while, and and, uh, you know, I'm going to move here, get a degree. I'm going to move there, work a job. I'm going to move there, you know, experience something new. And uh, it's not bad, of course, but I think what sometimes happens, what sort of creeps into our mentality when we're sort of used to this lifestyle is we say, I'm not going to be here for a long time anyways, so I don't need to invest in relationships because eventually I'm going to move on. And, um, and I think the example from Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila shows us that it doesn't matter how short of a time we have We'll find out later in Acts 18, all three of these people, they just lived here a year and a half, and then they moved on. 
It doesn't matter how short of a time we might have, we should still seek out community, seek out coworkers in Christ. You may not be lifelong friends, um, but for every season of life, it's important to have those friends, to have those coworkers to serve with. So that's the first thing I want to point out. Seek out some coworkers. Let's keep going. We're going to continue on in Acts 18. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to summarize the next uh, several verses. We see that Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they hang out in Corinth for a year and a half, and then they all leave. Paul decides he's going to keep going, and Priscilla and Aquila actually tag along with them. They go to Ephesus, and they do some ministry work there. Paul helps to establish a church there. And later, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, it, it seems like Paul moves on to Antioch, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in charge in Ephesus. In fact, later, when he's writing um, 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians, when Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, it's strongly implied. I mean, he, he, he says, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, they greet you, as well as a church that meets in their home. So it's, it seems like Priscilla and Aquila, they are recognized leaders, and they are the hosts of the church in Ephesus for at least a season. So anyways, Paul leaves and goes to Antioch. Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila, they're stationed there in Ephesus. Let's go to Acts 18, 24 to 28, and let's see what happens next. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So now introduced to this new guy, Apollos. This is the first time he's shown up on the scene in Acts. And here's how he's described. He's a, uh, he's a Jew from Alexandria. And Alexandria, if you're not familiar, is in Egypt. And uh, scholars believe this is the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, second just to Rome. And it had the reputation of being one of the most educated cities in all of Europe. Well, it's, technically, it's in Africa, but the, the great Roman Empire area, okay? It was the home of Philo. He was this great uh, Jewish philosopher who was around at the time as well as the Library of Alexandria, arguably the most famous library in all of the world at the time. And so and the author writes that he's also, he has a thorough knowledge. He's a learned man who has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And it's also said that he's a well-instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, now, when this phrase, the way of the Lord, is used, the way of God, the way of the Lord, the way, when this phrase is used in the book of Acts, it's, it's exclusively talking about Christianity. Okay, so it's not saying he's, you know, he's of some random religion. It's saying he's instructed in the way of the Lord. It probably means he's a Christian. Now, this is, gets confusing then because it clearly seems like he doesn't know some stuff, right? So Priscilla and Aquila, you know, they're, they're leaders in this church. You know, Paul sees this new guy who comes in, and they hear him preach and teach, and they, they go, okay, this guy doesn't have all, all the facts. And so what they do is they invite him to their house, and they correct him. They, they tell him what the, the word is, the, the phrasing is, that they taught about Jesus. Oh, actually, sorry. They, um, they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Okay. 
So that's interesting because it already says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. It already says he taught about Jesus accurately. And so then the, the natural question is, where was the incompletion? Where did he go wrong? Okay, so some scholars, they even suggest maybe he wasn't a true Christian. He was sort of, you know, he had some pieces, but he wasn't a true Christian. You know, it's not exactly clear. I tend to think he already was a Christian, and he just had some things wrong. You know, some people, they point to uh, Acts 19, the next chapter. There's a similar scene in which Paul, he meets some people, uh, and these people, they only knew the baptism of John. And, and it turns out uh, they didn't understand the Holy Spirit, and they experienced the Holy Spirit. And so that similar phrase, the baptism of John, is used also of Apollos. So some people think maybe he just didn't understand the work of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to say. That's a long rabbit trail. But I do want to say this, okay? One thing I want to point out is even though Apollos was this great teacher and this debater from this famous educated city from Alexandria, Priscilla and Aquila, they had the authority, they had the audacity to say, hey, why don't you come over to our house? Let me correct you. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong. And that, I think, is fascinating for a few reasons. And that leads me to a second principle about co-workers, which is that co-workers in Christ see one another at the same level. Co-workers in Christ see one another at the same level. They have the permission to speak into one another's lives and to see each other as equals. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter what academic pedigree you have. You are able to speak into each other's lives um, as co-workers in Christ. Now, here's something else I want to say about Priscilla and Aquila um, to make this even more interesting, okay, and controversial potentially. So earlier I mentioned uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they, uh, they're mentioned together all the time in the New Testament. They show up six times. Four of those times, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. And you might think that's not a huge deal. It is a big deal if you're familiar with ancient literature, because in ancient literature, around this time especially in the Roman Empire, first off, women are very rarely mentioned in writing, okay? Women, they're not, okay, and if you haven't figured out, Priscilla is a girl, Aquila is a guy, okay? So women, they're often not mentioned, okay? Two, if they are mentioned, they're usually single women. They're prominent single noble women. Uh, and three, so, so that's already kind of strange that Priscilla is married and she's mentioned, and three, if they are mentioned, it's almost always the husband is mentioned first. You know, we still have that tradition a little bit, Mr. and Mrs., so-and-so. It's the same thing even more so in the ancient times. It would probably be Aquila and Priscilla normally, and that's often, that, that was actually commented on by early church fathers as well. John Chrysostom, he's an early church father from the 300s, he wrote about this. He says, this too is worthy of inquiry. Why, as he addressed them, Paul has placed Priscilla before her husband, for he did not say, greet Aquila and Priscilla, he said this in his different letters, but Priscilla and Aquila. He does not do this without a reason, but he seems to me to acknowledge a greater godliness for her than for her husband. So it seems like, okay, we don't know all the details, but it seems pretty clear that Priscilla was either taking the more of the initiative, or was doing more of the teaching, more of the leading, more of the ministering, whatever, than Aquila was. Because otherwise, Luke, the author of Acts, wouldn't, and, and Paul later, wouldn't be listing Priscilla first. So that brings us to the potential issue of what do we do about gender roles? Okay, because many Christians, I don't know where you fall, but I'm just going to, you know, 
I'm just going to share a few things, okay? So many Christians, they, they have different understandings of gender roles, especially when it comes to church leadership and about roles within the church. Um, when Christians talk about gender roles, and especially when it comes to leadership in the church, I think there's a variety of positions where people may fall, okay? So some people, I'm just going to list all the different views, not all of them, just some of them, okay? The common ones. Some people would say women should never teach men in any context. That's sort of like one extreme. If you're a woman, if you have, you know, um, yeah, if you're a woman, then you shouldn't be teaching men unless maybe they're like kids or something, okay? And then some people would say, um, women can teach men in some contexts, but they should definitely not do it in a public setting. So that's sort of the line they draw. You can do it in private. You can do it in someone in your home, maybe, but you can't do it in a public setting. Okay, so maybe you can lead a Bible study, but you can't, you know, lead a Sunday school because that's more public or something like that. Okay, and then some people say it's okay for women to teach men in a public setting, but they can't do it in a re- in a religious service, in a worship service. So maybe a woman can speak at a retreat. It's a little informal, but you can't do it like you can't preach a sermon on a Sunday, right? And then some people say maybe it's, it's not necessarily do have, have to do with teaching, but maybe in their minds the, the main thing has to do with authority, your level of authority, and so it has to do with a position, an office. So they might say it's okay for women to preach on a Sunday in a service, but they can't hold a certain title, whether that title is pastor or elder or or deacon, so on. So there's a lot of, and then obviously there's the other side of things where they would say women can do anything that a, woman, that a man could do. So there's no restrictions at all on church leadership, okay? So this, we can have a whole sermon on this in itself, and I won't get into all of it, but I'll say a few things, okay? Um, so on the one hand, it is true that in the book of Acts, as well as in Paul's letters, there are clear examples of women having prominent prominent leadership positions, okay? That is true. So we see this, for example, Phil, uh, Philip's daughters prophesy. Okay, it's very clear. Prophecy is open to women, okay? Priscilla seems to take the lead here in correcting Apollo. So it seems like, clearly, women have some lead, teaching, correcting, instructing role, okay? In Romans, there's a woman named Junia whom Paul describes as outstanding among the apostles. That is the natural reading of the text. Junia is outstanding among the apostles, and it's so concerning that some translations, they actually change this to say uh, that Junia is uh, viewed highly by the apostles. Okay, so it's a very different interpretation. But the natural reading is that Junia is outstanding among the apostles, implying she is not only an apostle, but an outstanding one. Okay, so that's sort of concerning potentially. And then there's a woman named Phoebe, whom Paul calls a deacon and a benefactor, and, and, or, or some translations say patron. And, and in those days, that word in the original Greek implies a strong leadership position. Okay, so you have all these cases in the New Testament where it seems like women have some leadership position, okay? But on the other hand, okay, you have a few other passages namely 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, that seem to have strong restrictions on what women can do in the church. Okay, 1 Corinthians says that women ought to be silent in the church. And 1 Timothy instructs women not to teach or to exercise authority over men. And so those seem to be pretty strong too. So what do we do with what seem to be contradictory passages? And that's sort of the big question. 
And um, so I'm not going to answer all of your questions for you. And I think it's okay in a church like this for people to fall in different places. But I'll just say, it seems to me that there are three options. Okay? There are three options. The first option is you have to come up with a very specific boundary line that satisfies all of the different passages of Scripture. So you might say something, so, so in other words, you grant all the freedoms the New Testament seems to grant while having all the restrictions that the New Testament seems to contain. And you might say something like, women can prophesy, women can be deacons, women can instruct, but they cannot exercise authority, in, especially in a religious setting or something like that. And so critics, they might say, well, that seems kind of confusing. It seems kind of arbitrary. It seems even contradictory. Like, how can you prophesy but without authority? Or like, how can you be an apostle, but you can't speak in a religious setting? And so that, that seems kind of confusing. But some people, they have these systems, and they make it work. They sort of, they have their boundaries, okay? So that's one option. You just try to meet all the passages, okay? Here's option number two, which is you would say, under normal circumstances, women should not exercise authority over men, but there are some exceptions, right? So you say, under normal circumstances, women should not teach or exercise authority, but there are some exceptions, and exceptions could include maybe you are in a new, unreached area and a local church isn't established yet. You're on the mission field. You're a missionary. And so maybe on the mission field, because, you know, things are still in flux, you know, things are still not set in stone, you know, missionary, they have more freedom to do things that wouldn't be appropriate in a more local church established kind of place, okay? Or maybe they would say, maybe once in a blue moon, a female preacher can preach on a Sunday, but that shouldn't be the norm. It's an exception to the rule for the woman to preach on a Sunday, something like that, all right? And so this stance, what this would do is they would interpret 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, those passages about, you know, women not having authority. They would interpret that as the norm, and they would say junia is the exception to the rule, okay? And of course, the third option would be the opposite. The third option would be to say, under normal circumstances, women should have every leadership opportunity men would have, but there are also exceptions to the rule. So what this would do is they would look at Priscilla and Junia and, and figures like that, and they would say, that's the norm. And 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, that's the exception to the rule. So do you see what I'm saying? So they would say, empowering women to high levels of leadership should be normal throughout the church, but when there are special circumstances, maybe when a society is overly socially conservative so that it's offensive, or maybe, you know, when you have you know, women being carried away with false teaching or whatever. So in those scenarios, we should limit the authority of women. So that's the exception to the rule. So anyways, that, that's sort of an overview of the different views, just in case you're curious. Um, if you want to talk more, you can reach out. happy to talk more. But for now, I'll just say that regardless of where you stand, regardless of what you think, I just want to, for a moment, encourage you to put, put away the theological implications of this and just imagine the social implications of this because I think this, that's really what the heart of this passage is getting at. Think about the social implications of this, okay? You have Apollos. He's characterized as a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures from the famous Alexandria. And then you have Priscilla and Aquila. They're tent makers by trade, okay? They're not... They're not teachers by trade. They're tent makers from Pontus, which, by the way, Pontus sort of has a reputation of being a blue-collar region. It's not, it's not a place where people go to, you know, it's not, they don't have famous seminaries there, okay? It's like a blue-collar place. You have these people from this blue-collar place. 
And they are telling, they are correcting Apollos and telling him how to do things more rightly. Just from a social standpoint, regardless of what you think theologically, that is fascinating, that that is in the text here. And I think what this shows is that sometimes God works outside of social norms. God sometimes disrupts social hierarchy structures. It shows that being a co-laborer in Christ means that even though on the outside, you know, you may have different statuses, you may have different degrees, you may have different, you know, uh, levels of prestige, on the inside at the church, we're all equals. We all see each other eye to eye, and we all have permission to correct one another, to talk into one, to speak into one another's lives, and to also, on the other hand, to listen to one another, to respect each other's opinions. You know, when Jesus met with the Samaritan woman at the well, that was socially weird. That's, he crossed a, a lot of social, social boundaries in order to do that. Now, I think similarly, when Priscilla corrected Apollos on his teaching, that was also socially weird. But I think that's the nature of what it means to be the church. There's this inherent breakdown of social power, such that you give one another permission to speak into each other's lives. It doesn't matter how much influence or power you have in secular society. It doesn't matter what the social norms are. In the church, we're all at the same level. In the words of Galatians 3, 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. And I think it's important to say, it's not saying like gender doesn't exist and race doesn't exist, okay? I think what it's saying is that in the church, our identity in Christ is so strong that the, the distinctions that we have that typically result in power structures, they, those distinctions don't matter as much anymore. The power structures that are results of our distinctions don't matter as much. And we can, and in the church, anyone can have the spirit, anyone can have spiritual gifts, and anyone can be used for the building up of the church. So you see, being a co-worker in Christ means that we're all at the same level with one another. It means that someone of high rank can be corrected by someone of low rank. Someone with more social power or authority can be corrected by someone with less power or authority. And this is a two-way street. I think it's really important to recognize it's a two-way street, meaning people who, just, who traditionally have less power need to uh, be brave enough to see themselves as qualified to correct people um, who have more power. Now, on the other hand, people who, who traditionally have more power, they need to be humble enough to be able to take the criticisms of those uh, uh, who have less power. You know, I was talking about this with, um, with Pastor Allen recently, and, uh, about how, how I think, you know, we're talking about how one of the tragedies, I think, of the modern church is you have the celebrity culture of pastors. And, and sometimes these pastors, they, they are so, they're perceived as so high and mighty and untouchable that they don't have this sort of relationship where there is no room for people to correct them, to, for people to speak life into them, for, for them to be vulnerable and, and to share about their flaws. Um, and, and, and so you have people who are afraid to call them out, and you have these leaders who, you know, they feel like they don't really have a way to be open and honest about their struggles because they have this platform. They don't want to stumble people. And as a result, sometimes these leaders, they just get away with a lot of things. You know, and I'll say this, you know, I'm a pastor here at this church, and um, we have some leaders at this church. I think I feel safe speaking on behalf of everybody, um, but I'll just say it. I want for us to be a church where 
leaders can be corrected. Um, if you ever feel like leaders, people in positions of power, of influence in our church, are in the wrong, I think it's, just say, it's safe to say, based off of this passage, that you have permission to correct them. Whether that's me, whether it's someone else, to say, hey, I think you're in the wrong. And I don't want you to feel like just because you don't have some status or position or power that you don't have anything to say, you don't have the right to say anything. You know, I remember um, one time I preached a sermon. This is at another church. I preached a sermon, and then that day I got an email from someone, and she said, you know, I thought your sermon was great overall, but you said this one line, and I thought that was really hurtful, and I don't think that was appropriate. And... um, yeah, and I, and I remember, like, when I read that, I was like, oh, she's right. Like, I, I don't think I thought through the implications of the statement. I don't think I recognized how this statement could have sounded to certain people. And I recognized that was wrong. I don't think I should have said that. And so I apologized to her, and, and, and we had a little conversation about it. But I, I, I'm so thankful that I got that email because I think it, it – it was, I think, is an example of exactly this. That someone who, you know, maybe socially didn't have as much influence in the church as I did at the time, she felt confident enough to speak into me and to correct me. And I'm so thankful that she did. Because that enabled me to be a better minister in the future, right? Um, now, maybe some of you, uh, you're not naturally confrontational people, so you don't see yourself as that kind of person to correct someone when they're in the wrong, especially someone who maybe you perceive to have more power than you. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit like that. I'm an Enneagram 9 peacemaker, okay? You know, yesterday I was uh, at a playground with Stella, and uh, Stella, she's our five-year-old, and I was just watching her sitting on the bench, and she climbed this playground structure, and there was this other kid at the top of this playground structure who was probably younger than her. At least, at least he was smaller than her. But he was, like, pretending to be this dinosaur. Okay, so he was just, like, doing these dinosaur roars. And he just came up to her face and did this big dinosaur roar. And then he said something to her. I couldn't quite make it out, but it was, I think he said something like, you can't be on this playground or something like that. And then Stella just turned around, and then she just got off, and she was crying. And I gave her a hug, and we just sat on the bench for a while, and we ate pita chips for a while. And then... Um, I was just asking her what happened. She didn't seem like she wanted to talk about it. And then I asked, well, was this kid nice or mean? And she's like, mean. And I'm like, do you want to say anything back to him? He's like, no. She's like, no. And I was like, do you, did, did he say you, you don't belong? Or what? She's like, yeah, he, did, he didn't want me on the playground. And I said, um, what do you think about saying, I can be on this playground. Everyone can be on this playground. And she's like, no, I don't want, I'm too afraid. And I thought about that because I think that, that instinct, I mean, it happens at such a young age where you recognize who has the power and who doesn't and who, and you recognize, like, I'm not at a place to speak out against the people who have power. And there's so many people, I think, in our society, so many people in the church who feel like that. And it's so unfortunate because that's... Uh, yeah, that's when abuse goes rampant, right? When you have a culture where people who are powerless, they don't feel like they have any right to say things, to correct people who are in power. Um, you know, it is difficult to confront people. You know, I think it's, that's totally okay to acknowledge. 
it's okay to, to, to recognize that there are these people out there, they have more eloquence, they have more charisma, they have more social capital, whatever it is, and it's intimidating to call them out. And sometimes when you call them out, it makes things worse. Sometimes when you call them out, you get called out in return. And that, what that does is it, it internalizes this narrative inside of you that you should just keep quiet. So obviously, there's a lot of baggage that many people have, but I do think the ideal is listed out in this passage, which is that regardless of how power structures you know, display themselves in the secular world, the church should be different. The church should be different. When it comes to Christians who are followers of Jesus, who are co-workers in Christ, we need to commit to being equals. We need to commit to being able to confront sin and call out sin when it happens, regardless of who the sinner is, even if there's a cost. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned uh, that Paul called Priscilla and Aquila co-workers. I want to read this passage and, uh, because I love this passage, and we'll talk a little about it. This is Romans 16, 3 to 4. Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Now, we don't know what the incident uh, Paul's talking about here. Like, what does it mean they risked their lives for him? We don't know. We don't have any record of this. But somehow, somehow something significant happened such that not only was his life saved, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. That's a lot of churches. The churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. I mean, I'd love to know that backstory. Like, what happened there? But regardless of what happened, why did they do that? Why did Priscilla and Aquila risk their lives for Paul? Because that's what co-workers do. And that's another thing about co-workers. Co-workers in Christ take risks for one another. They take risks for one another. It might mean risking a friendship. It might mean risking your reputation. It might even mean risking your life. But we are committed to one another, and so we take those risks. So there's a, you know, some of the different things we talked about. Here are some of the different things we talked about, and, you know, what co-workers in Christ, what, they, what we do. You know, we seek one another out. We see one another at the same level. We take risks for one another. And I think here's the application, pretty obvious application. I want to encourage you to find co-workers in Christ who do these things. And I want to encourage you to do these things for other people. You know, I'm not talking about... Uh, you know, when I'm talking about coworkers, again, I'm not talking about people you work with, okay, like on a, you know, a secular day-to-day sort of thing. I'm talking about Christians, people who follow Jesus. Are you willing to have these sort of relationships with people? Are you willing to seek them out if you don't have them? Are you willing to see each other at the same level? Meaning, are you able to correct people and be willing to be corrected? And thirdly, are you willing to take risks for one another? Uh, in a moment, we'll be having a time of communion and, uh, so I'm so sniffly because it's cold and I have allergies. Doubly sniffly, okay? If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we're going to, uh, if you haven't grabbed one of those cups, please grab one of those cups to do communion. And uh, um, communion is a symbolic reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus gave uh, for us when he died on the cross. The, bre- the bread represents his body broken for us and the juice represents his blood shed for us. And we take communion regularly because his sacrifice for us is the foundation for everything that we do. And I want, to think of, I want you to think about communion in light of what we talked about today, because, you know, we're talking about being co-workers 
of Christ with one another. You know, one of the things that I love about the gospel is everything that we do rests on the gospel. Everything is founded on the gospel. And the things we talked about today, same thing. They rest on the gospel too because Jesus, in many, way, was the, in many ways, was the ideal co-worker with us. Think about these three, three things that we talked about. Number one, Jesus sought us out. You know, we were all like sheep. We all went astray. But Jesus took the initiative. He sought us out. He sought to be with us and to serve us and to, and to walk alongside us. And number two, Jesus saw us at the same level. You know, obviously, when we, when we talk about power structures, there is no more distinct power structure than that between God and humanity. He's God and we're not. He lived in heaven, we don't. But he chose to descend from heaven to earth to be just like us, to take on human, flesh, human form, and, and he became just like one of us. He treated us all the same, regardless of who we were. And thirdly, Jesus took a big risk. I mean, he risked his life for us, even dying on the cross for us. He not only did, you know, he, so Priscilla and Aquila, they risked their lives, but Jesus actually gave his life at the cross for us. And he demonstrated for us what it means to be an ideal co-worker for one another. So um, in that light, uh, let's take communion together. Um, feel free to take out your cup right now. Thank you. <laughs> um, and remember Jesus' body and blood that were broken for us. Let's take both of these elements together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much just for the message of this gospel and this message of Jesus dying on the cross for us, his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, We thank you so much that um, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were all running away, Jesus sought us out. We think that even though we were sinners and we didn't deserve it as well, he chose, Jesus chose to become just like us, to descend to our level. And we thank you so much that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He gave up his life for us. He put his whole life on the line for us so that we, though we were sinners, we may have life. We would be restored into a right relationship with you. And so I, got, I, I pray we would learn from that, that this message would seep into our bones so that we would live in the same way with one another, that we would seek people out, that we would see them as equals, and that we would also risk our lives and do bold things for one another, regardless of the cost. Um, God, I pray for our church. I pray that our church, we would see each other uh, the way Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Paul saw each other, that we're on this collective mission, uh, that the most important things in life is, are not, you know, our secular vocations, but it is this mission of the church, and we are laboring together. We are working together to build the church, equip the saints, make disciples. So I pray that you help us all to, to, to figure out what is our place here in this mission. How have you gifted us? How have you equipped us? How have you so wired us to participate in this mission, regardless of what it might look like? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.